podcast one production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. I'm in New Zealand, sitting in the sunshine, having a drink at the home of four-time winner of the great race at Bathurst, V8 supercar driver Greg Murphy. He's enjoying life back on home turf nowadays, which has come full circle for him as he kicked off his career here in New Zealand karting. His love of racing started as a spectator, though, going to the track with his dad. We used to, we used to go to down to Manfield and go to Bay Park and bits and pieces and and just just sit on the bank and uh, watch the watch the racing and you know just look at these uh, amazing machines getting th- flung around these um, little race tracks and and uh, so it was just a, it was a hobby watching you know viewing being a fan being a being a spectator and then um, you know a bit of karting came into it and so you know that uh, there was a bit more of a connection I suppose between. Um, you know, uh, a little bit of racing it myself, and my dad was doing a little bit of karting, and then um, you know, combining that with with our our following of the sport at the at the high level domestically, but also very much um, in the uh, Australian Touring Car Championship as well. You know, that was that was uh, one thing that um, you know I always used to love reading the you know modern motor mag and getting the updates and and um, um, and also the occasional bit of TV coverage here in New Zealand, but then also Bathurst, which was, you know, live on, on television every year in, in New Zealand. That was a, you know, definitely a, um, a, uh, an event that, you know, we built up to just like many people still do today and, and enjoyed, enjoyed watching. What was in the family garage back then? What was, what was your dad, Kev, driving? And can you, can you remember the cars that sort of caught your attention? No, well, there was all the cars that caught my attention were ones that we certainly didn't have. Um, you know, uh, Dad, um, Dad was, uh, had company cars and bits and pieces, depending on the jobs he was doing. You know, he had a ute for a very long time. It was a, a you know, Falcon ute, and that was work vehicle. And, and um, you know, then company vehicles throughout the, the time, nothing special, all sort of small. And then, But he did have a couple of a Commodores, VL Commodores, back in, um, back in the 80s when um, uh, the, the VLs had the 2-litre, and the three-liter six-cylinder Nissan engines actually back then, and uh, and I thought that was probably the that was definitely the coolest cars he ever had. Um, while uh, while I was still at school on those kinds of things, so you know, so yeah, it was yeah, there was uh, always a very much a, a love affair and a, a following of of what was in the marketplace and what the cool cars were. And as I say, the you know, modern modern motor mag was was uh, probably a bit of the bible back then to to keep up to speed with what was going on. Karting wasn't an easy thing for you insofar as uh, you know, it's, a, it's an expensive sport, but there wasn't always money on tap for the Murphy family just to go and do that. So you guys worked really hard in, in that regard, didn't you? But was there a moment where you kind of thought, you know, it really clicked for you and, and that you knew this was something you wanted to pursue more than just a, just a hobby? Not really. Not really um, while I was racing karts because the, 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 that connection, as I said, was... was um, wasn't there other than what we were doing as as being spectators in our, in our karting. So um, the thought of that was 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 a long way away. It was it was very foreign, and, and um, you know uh, watching watching Craig Beard and Paul Radisich and Ken Smith and all those guys in their Atlanta cars and everything was um, was just uh, you know something that I just. I loved watching, but I never really and and, I, and would go wow that'd be so cool to do, but it wasn't a um, you know there was no path, and and it was a you know uh, back then I think it was it was very few and far between. It wasn't like it is now that these are the stepping stones are are taken by more drivers, and the the opportunities are probably okay they cost money, but they're there if you want them. You know they are just there, and I, I don't think that was really like that back then. You know it was a few and far between. The people that were doing it had been doing it for a long time. The uh, new new people coming in were, were few and far between and you know I remember Beardo you know he was he, um, was usually a little bit ahead of me in karting all the time we didn't get to race together very much at all in karts but you know I knew who he was and you know and, and when he stepped up it was like a big deal because that went from karts and got into Formula Ford that wasn't really something you saw, saw a lot of so um, you know you didn't know didn't really know how to do it now 
um, you just make a phone call somewhere and you can go and drive anything as long as you uh, you know you got the the cash to pay for it. So um, yeah, I, I just sort of sat on the sidelines and and dreamt about it and looked at other pathways for, for careers outside motor racing until until um, the the scholarship um, presented itself back in 1990, um, run out of Manfield. And I, you know, we entered that scholarship, and I was that was my pathway, and that was my my chance and opportunity to to step into a racing car for the first time. We'll focus on the racing side of it, but did your teachers tell you no? <laughs> you're wasting your time. And what would the alternative career paths have been if you didn't go motor racing? Oh, I think you know. I think it's a it's a fairly common common story for. I think I've heard it before as well. That um, you know the. Uh, um, the curriculum. Oh no, was it the, the, the careers, careers advisor? That's it. <laughs> that's probably why they told me that because I couldn't even say their, what their job was. Um, the careers advisor. You know, it was like, wow, well, you know, that's what I want to do. And it's like, well, you know, it, just, it doesn't seem very realistic, does it, Greg? But um, <laughs> anyway, I, I chased a path and going down. I wanted to be a pilot as well. That was another thing. I just I liked aviation, so I sort of chased the the um, the Air Force path to go and uh, fly Skyhawks in the New Zealand Air Force and. Um, I also didn't uh, didn't get the the greatest uh, reviews from from those that were taking all the tests to become pilots, so that failed as well. <laughs> so how did a young Greg Murphy get around back then? What was the car? What were the wheels? How were you? Were you is it Datsun? Is that correct? I was big borrowing and stealing uh, <laughs> because I uh, I did have a Datsun twelve hundred triple S, um, and it was uh, uh, my pride and joy. But um, I uh, I went and did. Um, did uh, the worst possible thing to it and, and wrote it off. Um, so uh, learnt my lesson. What was the triple S? You know, did it was it twin SUs? What's it, just a twelve hundred engine? What was the? Uh... Well, it was, it was genu- a genuine car. So they didn't make, they didn't have the triple um, the twelve hundred triple S in, in Australia, but it was it was actually done here. It was uh, the, the standard twelve hundreds were imported to New Zealand, and there was an arrangement with a sort of a, an aftermarket. Is <laughs> um, uh, a shop back then? We're talking obviously early seventies uh, to um, put some uh, high back uh, seats in them, front seats, uh, special little console, centre console with a rev counter in it, um, uh, a camshaft slid into the little twelve hundred uh, with um, twin twin forty uh, mil Delorados, just sitting in one now and driving it now, and you know. Just because you're older, I'm not like I'm any bigger, but just because I'm older, you and and everything else has got so big, you know. And here you are in this tiny little car, and it is tiny, you know. You wouldn't want. We used to pack it four people up, you know, in it, or five people up in this little thing. It was sitting on the on the wheels were rubbing inside the arches, and go off on trips and all sorts of things. And it was just like it was just like this is what was done. I wouldn't do that now. I wouldn't do that if bloody someone paid me to do it. So yeah, but I said it was just a. Yeah, one of those things that you become attached to, and and uh, there was a tear when I bloody went and wrote the thing off, and and finally got round to finding another one a long time later. How authentic is the resto that you've done to the the original? And what other little extras have you added on over time that you perhaps couldn't afford back then? Ah, uh, yes. Well, there was no extras on the other one, and uh, it went um, it went. Uh, uh, went without plenty, I can tell you. Uh, recaps on the on you know as far as the tyres went and all sorts of things because <laughs> there was no money anywhere. Um, so this one is uh, a little bit better. It's uh, it's basically a, a nearly a brand new car, but it's got a, a fifteen hundred in it instead of the. I've got the original matching numbers twelve hundred engine for it, and the four speed gearbox that comes with it. Um, but this one's got um, a fifteen hundred engine that's uh, been. Um, yeah, breathed on beautifully by uh, a, a specialist in Auckland, Tony Marsh, who is a very well-known Nissan specialist, has, has built it, and it's um, it's got a f- little five-speed gearbox on it rather than the four-speed. And it's uh, other than that, it's it's pretty much standard and original. Um, I've got a little quick shifter though for okay. the gearbox, you know, so she's a very short, sharp. I mean, that's that's racy, that's full on racy. So, uh, so yeah, she's other than that, she's uh, fully pretty much standard. So um, it uh, it goes incredibly well. So in terms of the the racing here, you spent a little bit of time in uh, America. You were kind of contemplating different options in your in your career. You spent four months, I think, stateside, didn't you? At one point, you said and and that was a real lure for you but mm. an initial detour along the way was really it was australia in the mm. in the early 90s wasn't it yeah the the, the whole um 
the added complexity of think of of America was just like whoa, that's you know that was uh, as far away as you could possibly imagine um, as far as our thought processes, and then finding out the costs of it and what was required, and you know, no one just gives you a drive because um, mm. because you might be quick. You know, it was hard enough to even get in a car, and I was working for a race team who had seen me race, and we occasionally needed to go to the racetrack to to do some you know some tuning or some testing or whatever and it was it was even difficult getting in those cars because they were owned by owned by the guys that were racing them and you know and they didn't know really necessarily who the hell I was and there was a couple of guys that were in the team that had been in New Zealand and I had been racing against so they knew me as well and I thought well maybe I'll just be able to you know score a a drive at some stage and get a freebie but that never came along so Australia was just close um you know it was uh uh the cars we knew the cars um and there was uh, maybe uh, opportunities over there. You know, touring cars was huge, and I was still a massive fan. And you know, you never know. So that was that was part of the plan. But it was the you know the fact that it was close, the cost. We you know we could get to the first round and um, not be in too much strife financially, and then take it one by one. And that's what we did. We had to take each race into you know as as they came and and see if we had the funding to do the, the one after. To paint a picture for people that might be listening that don't know what the Formula Brabham or the Formula Holden cars mm. were at that at that stage, they're an open wheeler, kind of a bit like a scaled down Formula One or Formula Three Thousand style car with wings and sleeks and a and a six cylinder engine. What were they like to drive? Well, the chassis is say three thousand cars mostly. There was some other things in there, a couple of Australian made um, single seater race cars as well. Um, but uh, we were I was in a Raynard. Yeah, I was sorry, I was in a Rolt for that season. I'd been racing a Raynard. 90D Reynard, and I was in a Rolt um, in that that championship that year, um, and you know they were uh, big, wide tyres, lots of aero, proper single seater racing car designed to race in in Europe, you know, stepping stone to Formula One. So um, and Lounsey went over there, you know, remember in 1997 to do F3000, um, and these cars were earlier versions of of, of what he ended up doing um, in 1997. Um, so they were they were good. They just had the the Holden V6 uh, power plant in them, so they were about 320 odd, I think, round horsepower. Um, but the cars were light. And you know carbon fiber tubs and all that kind of stuff, so they they got along you know really good. I can't remember the lap times. Um, I mean one twenty twos or something around Eastern Creek back then, back in nineteen ninety four, something like that. So they, they were pretty rapid for something that didn't have a, a huge amount of grunt. But um, just you know that's where I wanted to be. They were fast round corners. You had to be committed, very very committed to be fast in one and and um, it was a it was a huge buzz you had some touring car experience as well with with mark pitch in the Whittaker's peanut slab uh ford sierra from memory but in australia the the first real door opening if i'm right is in a was in a toyota carina at bathurst is that right tell us about that it said we're talking front wheel drive two liter what was that like yeah i hadn't i mean i hadn't really done anything like that other than um a little bit more production stuff in New Zealand and a little bit of that and then uh, that first opportunity came about pretty much as that car uh, from the British Touring Car Championship arrived in in, uh, was on its way to New Zealand and Peter Addison at the time who was um, uh, one of the the guys that put together this the Super Tour, the Australian Super Touring Championship, um, had uh, sort of intercepted it from a guy named Bruce Miles, who's a bit of a car collector and, and Toyota dealer in down south in, in the South Island, New Zealand. Intercepted this car and got it in to race in the championship, the Australian Championship, and it debuted at um, Phillip Island actually in in uh, the second round of that championship, either late April, early May of uh, 1994. And, and and because of my performance in the the Formula Holden at um, Eastern Creek, he had um, seconded me to, to to drive that car as, and as well drive the, the Formula Holden. So I was doing double double duties. My first, second event in Australia, and I was driving two different two cars at the same event. And I just was like in, in just a total la la land couldn't believe what was happening so it was a it was a, a pretty uh, interesting debut too in, a, in that car because um campbell little obviously of supercars fame been around a very very long time he was engineering the car and um the was one of the practice sessions prior to qualifying uh maybe on the saturday morning we um i had a fuel pressure alarm come up on the dash came into the the, the pit at phillip island came in stopped um 
turn the engine off. Well, I actually might not have turned the engine off. I was sitting there I'm going, and I'm telling Cam I've got a fuel pressure problem. Um, he opened the, the passenger's door. I hadn't even seen it. He opened the passenger's door to, to look around to see, you know, if there was an, uh, uh, something electrical or whatever. And uh, the passenger side of the car, which was the left-hand side of the car, um, uh, the, f- uh, the footwell and everything in the passenger side of the car was full of fuel. Oh. And so the, f- the fuel line from the back of the car somewhere ruptured and was filling the car up with fuel. And um, as he did that, um, it ignited. And so the, the car was on fire. <laughs> Peter Addison um, grabbed the fire extinguisher while everyone else stood back and watched because he was like, I'm not having this happen to this car. This is so important. So put the fire out, managed to fix, the pr- fix it. It didn't actually do too much damage because the... The fuel was burning, not the car, and uh, went on to um, to race that weekend in, in the Toyota, and then onwards. James K from the UK turned up and did some race meetings, and he and I joined forces to to run the car at Bathurst in '94. Amazing. You then get an opportunity with with Brad Jones, don't you, in in an Audi to contest the Super Touring Championship, and then beyond that with the the Holden Racing Team to you know pair up with Craig Lowndes at Bathurst, the touring car path had had really changed as a result of that hadn't it you you were then getting more and more opportunities in that sort of domain yeah well it was it was like this these were chances being given opportunities being provided and and you were being offered um so the super touring thing with audi with brad was was amazing as effectively the you know and the factory team in, in australia were they good cars they were amazing cars, absolutely amazing cars. But um, you know, I was I was obviously in a big hurry and and wanted to maximise all this um, pretty you know in a big way. But I was I was the junior number two, and um, and which probably didn't sit too well with me at the time because all I wanted to do was win races. But the cars were fantastic. Love driving them. You know, Brad um, and Kim obviously had a a, a great. Um, Ability to put a team together and run a good team and all that, and um, and also that was in a combination with, you know, uh, with with Peter Addison as well, who had um, basically, I suppose, uh, leveraged me into the the other seat because of our sort of relationship, which was which was sort of blossoming, I suppose, as far as you know, him helping me uh, become a um, a full time race car driver. So without his assistance, I would never have you know got these certainly that chance in the Carina and then in the with with Brad and Kim in the Audi. So. Um, and with that happening, you get on the radar a little bit more, and I was on the radar a bit more, and that's when um, Jeff Greek um, gave me a call to do a test with the Holden Racing Team because he had taken notice of what um, you know what I was doing in uh, in the Audi in the early part of 1995. So here's a bloke who, with his dad, had religiously watched Bathurst from yeah. a youngster. Now you get an opportunity to test with the team at the time. What was that like? What were your first recollections of driving a supercar? What did you think? Uh, it's a blur, to be honest. Such an absolute blur because um, I I turned up at Melbourne um, at Melbourne at Calder Park on I think it was either a May or June June day um, in '95 after getting a call from Jeff. Who, which I didn't believe was him. For, for, for <laughs> what quite, did you say then? Quite a while. Oh, I just was like, <laughs> I just, I, oh, you know, you know how blokes play tricks on each other. And I, and Mark Addison, Peter Addison's brother, and I were getting on really well, and you know, having a pretty good time living in Sydney, being a footloose and fancy free. But you know, blokes play tricks on each other. So um, um, I just assumed it was actually him or someone else <laughs> gagging me. It did, as it turned out, it wasn't. And uh, I turned up in, in Melbourne, and this, it was a freezing cold Melbourne day, horizontal rain going down the front straight at Calder and um, these uh, under the, the awning off the side of the HRT truck was, um, you know, the Peter Brock's race car for 1995 and, and um, they were like, oh yeah, well, jump in, off you go, kind of deal, so blasé it's like, you got to be fucking kidding me don't you? <laughs> this is just this is, you're insane, I've never driven one before and it's, it's like we're on wets in this horrible weather at Calder and if anyone knows Calder it's you know it's not exactly the nicest place in the in, in the sunshine um, it's certainly not very good in the in the rain when you know when you uh, come onto the front straight drive across the the drag strip which has got covered in VHT mm. and my first lap came across the drag strip covered in VHT and turned it 90 degrees to the front straight and was heading straight towards the concrete wall did it stop uh, miraculously, and I don't think it had anything to do with anything I did, but um, it didn't hit the wall and oh. sort of made the grass and turned and carried on. And um, anyway, that was that was that, and did the first test. I can't. I really, honestly, it was such a blur. I don't even really recall the day 
other than that moment. Um, I don't. I couldn't tell you how many laps I did. Couldn't tell you anything because I was just so. I was absolutely shitting myself the whole time I was driving that car. Um, but anyway, I went back to another test and things got better and and um, they were and thanks to Jeff, really. I mean, he had to do a lot of talking, a lot of persuading, persuading Tom, Walkinshaw, um, uh, John Crenn and everybody that this is the way we need to go. This is the pathway that we need to take to, you know, um, prepare for the future because of the fact we've got Peter Brock here, but he's not going to be around forever kind of deal. And um, we need to look to the future to, to get a step ahead of other teams and and um, maybe get some different talent out there, young blood. And that was his, you know, his thoughts and his way that he wanted to run the race team and and I was a huge benef- benefactor as was um, Craig Lance of that that program and his his um, his thoughts on where he wanted to go. We'll get to the Bathurst wins in a second. What about Brock? I mean, he's you know even now um, over a decade since he's passed on, he's still huge in many people's eyes. What was he like to work with? How welcoming? How helpful? What was he like? Uh, well, yeah, uh, for those people that have had um, a chance to had a chance to spend time with him or know him or you know the fans that. Um, that uh, he had spent so much time with, you know, he was he was that guy. He was uh, he came across all the time as, as wanting to help, uh, wanting to assist. But he was laid back, um, very easy as a teammate to work with. He was, but on the flip side, he was still incredibly competitive, very determined, and as much as he often showed up a, a um, you know a personality of 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 having. You know, um, of, of being relaxed and 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 you know, it's all good. It's all pretty calm and and cruisy. You know, when he got in that race car, even though he made it look easy, he was always out there for one thing, and that was to win, absolutely win. And he he never stopped at that you know competing at that level. He may not have put the effort in in 1997 when I was his teammate. Maybe not put the effort in um, in the on the periphery. Of you know he was retiring that year and the focus was so much on his retirement and it was a massive big show the whole way through '97 you know while he delivered his his final tour essentially you know maybe the the effort wasn't put in on the racing side as far as you know um, spending time with the engineers and focusing on the bits and pieces to make the car go faster that kind of thing but every time he got in the car he drove it like in some cases you'd look at what he was doing and go how the hell did he do that um and it was a it was a learning curve and it was a learning curve in many respects because you know he um he and bev were committed to the fans in 97 and and um i was traveling with them a lot of the time and uh with him and paul weissel our media guy and um you know i was you know 26 years old and teammate to to peter brock and he he drove he drove me mad because he just it was just and but I realise now and understand it you know what he was doing I mean he he treated the people and the fans with such respect and and was committed to making sure that you know everyone was treated the same and all I wanted to do was get out of the track every night and go back to the hotel or spend time with you know the engineers or whatever it was to you know to to be better tomorrow. But um, you know, you'd sit there and wait for Brock. Wait, you'd be leaving. You'd be leaving for two hours. You're trying to get out of the car park or driving out for two hours because every time someone saw him, they'd stop and he'd chat, chat, and you'd be in the back seat just going, "Come on!" Because no one, no one wanted my autograph, which was fair. But it was. But you know, you look at that and you learn from what he was doing and how he went about that process. And you know, he uh, um, he he. He knew that that was such an integral, important part of why he had become who he was, was, was the people around him and the fans that gave him the opportunity to, to do what he did. And uh, that, was, uh, that was pretty serious. And that's, you know, I think, um, you know, Craig Lowndes was probably the one that has taken on that more than just about anybody else because of his relationship with Peter. And, um, you know, has tried to continue on that kind of um, relationship with the people. And, you know, that's why he is, he is revered and loved as much as he is. This is Greg Rust, and you're listening to Rusty's Garage. More with Greg Murphy in a moment. In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate automotive designers, collectors, riders and drivers I know. Robbie Madison is known as the modern-day Evil Knievel. 
Maddow's jumped off buildings in Las Vegas, made the Guinness Book of Records by launching 100 metres on his dirt bike and played stunt double for Daniel Craig in the James Bond movie Skyfall. His love of pushing the limits also extends to engineering. You know, as a kid surfing on the south coast of Kiama, I'd always sit in the ocean. I used to think, how good would it be to jump off this way to that one over there? And now that's what my goal is. That's my, my vision. So I'm going to turn my KTM from 72 horsepower to 150 horsepower, supercharge it, and uh, the thing's going to float, and we're going to be able to do freestyle motocross on the water. Learn about the bike that floats in the full episode with Robbie Madison on Rusty's Garage. Handbrake turn. Before electronic handbrakes, this is how people navigated tight turns in car parks and wet roundabouts. Those were the days. Is the 96 Bathurst win with Craig, I mean, pair of youngsters doing so well in in the team, to win the great race, is that kind of etched in the mind even now? That's ridiculous. It really is. It's just crazy. Absolutely craziness. Because, um, you know, I just... Uh, it wasn't too many years before that well, it was only three really years before that. I hadn't even been to the race. I hadn't been to Australia. Um, hadn't sat in a touring car, other than the, the, the you know the, the slab at um, Wellington at Pukekohe. And um, and here I am um, in '96 at my you know, at my second or well, third time, but second time there in a super in a V8 touring car. And um, you win the thing. It's like it shouldn't be happening. It really shouldn't be happening. But we would, you know, no question, believe we're in the best car. Um, an amazing team that had great resources, uh, fantastic tyres, because back then it was still, it was a bit of, it was open slather on, um, on, on rubber, and we had Bridgestones, and they were very, very good. Um, huge support, you know, and, and well-prepared team that, um, that gave Craig that year a, a, a brilliant race car to go and win the, win the Touring Car Championship. And, um, you know, we were pegged as favourites when we started by winning Sandown as well. So, you know, it was, uh, it was something that, yeah, it's, it's hard, to, hard to really put into words because it, it, ha- it happened so quickly. 600-plus horsepower, Holden Commodore, a couple of young blokes at the, at the wheel. Was the thing around the mountain nice to drive? Was it on the edge? Was it what described the race car? It was daunting, but the team had massive belief, huge support. Um, my first stint in 96 in the car, if you remember, it was a, just terrible conditions to start of 96. The rain, uh, it, was, um, it was just horrendous. And, and um, I also remember that um, Alan Jones was in the, the pack leader, Falcon, and he was very fast, and then it caught fire on the side of the hill. Um, and the conditions started to get better and better, and... and uh, Lounsey was about to jump out of his first stint, which had gone on. I can't remember; it was long because back then the the fuel mileage was heaps better. You know, we were getting mid thirties in the uh, per stint. You know, I think thirty three, thirty four laps, or whatever. And so by the time he was starting to end the first stint, um, things were starting to change. Parts of the track were starting to dry, and so they said, oh, "You know, what tyres do you reckon we should put on?" And and he was like, oh, it's definitely slicks, definitely slicks. I was like, all right, jump in slicks. I got out there. The thing, it's wet everywhere. <laughs> like, the top of the mountain is just wet. And I'm on slicks in my first time ever, uh, first stint in a, in a V8 at the mountain. And it was, I was just, yeah, a uh, duck out of water pretty much because I was so nervous. Um, actually clipped the wall where uh, Chaz Mostert bloody crashed um, wow. a few years ago in, in qualifying to do all that damage that he did. I clipped, I rode up the wall at that kink in 96 and I thought that was it. As I, I came out of the dipper, second, third gear just gave the throttle a little bit, of a, little bit of dab and the back of the car just stepped out and climbed up the wall. And it was just, yeah. Anyway, it started to all come together and it, all, it started to dry out, got the pace, you know, and we started to move forward and... and um, it was just an incredible race. I mean, I ended up passing passing Dick Johnson at one stage late in the race. You know, um, uh, lead, and we ended up lead. I was leading leading the race and had the car back to Craig in, in first position, and he went on and, and um, finished it with ease. So it was it was just uh, yeah a moment that you um, struggle to to believe is even happening, and and you know struggle to believe happened. So you get the the main ride in in '97. Cray goes off to sort of pursue potential international ambitions and things like that. Sadly, for you know all sorts of reasons, it didn't work out for him, and that kind of had a knock on effect on on you. 
and you and I worked together at that stage doing some some commentary for, for television stuff and you went to America I think from memory and did a seat fitting in an indie lights car and may have even been a test in an IndyCar at that stage. Was there a bit of a reassessment, a career reassessment during that time? Yeah, it was, it was a difficult time um, and probably not handled very well by myself either, to be honest. Why? Um, Why? Oh, because, you know, 97, I put a lot of pressure on myself and we were very fast. Mm. Uh, we had a significant a few significant issues which really blighted our championship that year and, and it was it was really costly and, and it was it was just uh, there was a lot of pressure on and, and, and I was a lot of disappointment not just by for me but for the team also because you know they had a lot of pride in, in what they were doing and we had some great people there and and um, you know we sort of we, we sort of threw the champion not threw it away but we had issues and problems and development things that we were doing at the time which were very costly and mm. you know there was um, several front row starts that I didn't even make the start because of you know mechanical failures and things that happened and you know and it was just it was hard, it was a hard year in that respect and but you know um, still very positive because you know I was, I was winning races and you know when things were going right and and it was it was good. It was a huge rivalry with Russell Engel that year and Larry Perkins, and it was it was all on. It was uh, you know you look back and it was pretty entertaining. Um, and but then you know uh, Mark Scaife was also on the radar and and had um, you know put himself in a position and rightfully so obviously to uh, to get a drive at the Holland Racing Team with the Gibson Motorsport sort of thing falling over and then Lounsey's thing um, came apart. And he was on a long-term contract with Walkinshaw, and you know they just came back, and and so I suppose, um, yeah, I was in the you know the wrong place at the wrong time mm. at that point, where I'd been in the right place at the right time, you know, to, to be there and in, in, in there. So it was hard, but I also did have those dreams, and the team was really supportive of of the American side of things, and they were doing things to help through contacts like Mobile at the time, who were obviously massive supporters of the team, and and you know they they were going out of their way to also help me and my dream as well. Um, so you know, I probably just um, I just wanted everything. I wanted my cake, eat it too, and and have control. And I didn't have control. You won four Bathursts in your career. We'll deal with the ones that came out racing in a moment. But one that kind of springs to mind is '99 with you and Stephen Richards, because he said to me recently that I think you guys drove to Bathurst from Melbourne that year, and you talked a lot about different things in the lead up. And the Gibson Motorsport cars that you raced that year weren't by any stretch the most competitive relative to to others. But you kind of thought collectively that you and he and and the uh, consistency of that package would be a good thing at the mountain that year, and it turned out that was the case, wasn't it? hundred percent. I think we even made a list uh, in between stints, changing drivers, um, driving up to to Bathurst. And I think we we um, you know we went through the the entry list and and looked at the pros and cons and and what was what we thought was possible. And at the end of the day, we we were we sold ourselves on the fact that you know the stat the statistics were good for us. Mm. He had just won the race the year before. He was the current champion. Mm. I'd won it, you know, not long before that. Um, yeah, we didn't have the best cars. They weren't outright the fastest. But we believed, you know, we were having, we, we had a, a consistent package, a consistent car, a very good team that knew strategy and managed that really, really well. Some fantastic people on there that were very smart who, who would maximise, you know, and we would maximise our car every single lap, you know. And um, that's the way it played out. You know, at Bathurst, um, you know, you, things do have to work out. You know, you can be you can be the fastest car on the day, fastest um, team, uh, fastest driver combination, the whole thing. Doesn't mean you're going to win it. Mm. There's just it just just doesn't work out that way. So every year that you you know that you have success in the mountain, things have have worked in your favour. Just you just don't lead from start to finish, and um, and dominate and walk away with the race. That just you know it just doesn't happen. So you know I'm sure those that raced in '99 will have their stories as to why they didn't win, like Paul Radisich. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, that's the way it works. Yep. And uh, you know you can I if you want a list of sorrow stories that I've got on, on days on days that I could have won that race that I didn't um, then I've got my list as well but it didn't work out that way so it was it was a it was an interesting win and a hard fought one and, and one that um, yeah we we were you know you always are and everyone that was a part of that should be very proud of you move into the 2000s and ultimately to what became Kmart Racing and 2003 was an amazing year in terms of the Bathurst victory but also what became affectionately known at the time as the lap of the gods your lap to get pole 
was the first time that the category had seen a, a supercars lap under the two minute seven barrier. Well, on the Friday, it was the first time we'd seen one under the two minutes eight barrier. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Well, I'd, actually, I don't even know if we'd done one on the two minutes eight prior to that either. Um, that would have to be checked. But you know, we dipped into the sevens in qualifying. Me, myself, John Bauer and Mark Scaife, you know, dipped into the sevens, and I'm pretty sure we hadn't been in the eights. But the circuit had been resurfaced. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was in beautiful shape. Track was perfect. Conditions were perfect. And they were good all, you know, pretty much all week, all weekend. So, you know, there was there were record, records being broken, you know, all the way through that week. And, and a big part of that, as I say, was the fact that probably it was a... I couldn't tell you the time before that, but the circuit had been fully resurfaced and that, that played a part. car was clearly beautiful and you were in great form, but I think you said to me once that the lap wasn't completely perfect. Even though you got to a two-minute 6.8, you feel like there was a little bit more in it, wasn't there? Well, you were there, mm-hmm. right there, and, you know, part of the part of the whole deal, um, which, you know, was only... You know, it was more, obviously more... made more special, that whole thing, and, and more memorable because of the reaction mm. of the pit lane and, and um, that was uh, that was the thing that made the shivers go down my spine was the fact that people mm. were like, oh, that was pretty good, you know, and, and appreciated it for what it was. Um, so to, to, to be the, the pilot that achieved that, mm. you know, that just doesn't happen very often. So, you know, that was, that's what made it. But yeah, you know, you know, I stepped out of that car and you were the first guy to speak to me with the microphone and yeah, I was just, just, Taken back by what was going on, and and yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't right. I, I, you know, H pattern gearboxes, boys. That's uh, that, you know separates the men from the boys, and you know, it got pretty good at using one. But you know, I was in a in this in a space in a in a zone that I could probably can't tell you I've ever really felt since. Um, it was just everything was working well. I knew I knew that the car was going to do exactly what I wanted to do and uh, came out of the dipper that lap and had just flowed the car down the hill felt fantastic came out of the dipper got on the gas and we flat shifted you know I used to just dip the clutch ever so slightly just to to release the load between you know the 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 drivetrain just Mm. to allow that gearbox that fraction fraction split sort of uh, release to to get it into the next gear and Pretty much, I'm sure everyone was doing that, you know, back then. But you didn't lift the throttle; you just, you just took the gear lever through to the next cog. And I had to come across the gate to third from second, and cross the gate. Um, that was the hardest gear shift in that gearbox was second to third. And instead of going across the gate enough, I, I didn't, and it went straight into first, Wee. coming out of the out of the um, out of the di- um, yeah out of the dipper, and um, and it just, you know. Uh, the the <laughs> the noise, you know. I just went, oh my god, this thing, you know. It was nine two, I think, at rev two, oh. and uh, but you kind of caught it. Is that what you I just, yeah, it was a very quick. It was up, and by the time I had, the time when I started to realise it hadn't. I think even when it was going into the the hole, and the, the gear lever was going into the hole, I knew it was going in the wrong place. But it took, so I was already clutching and releasing and and putting it back into third. Um, you know, very very quickly. So it hit nine two very quickly, and then but then it was like woke me up from this bloody trance I was in. Huh? And you know, I I was like so angry with myself. You know, it's like you you idiot, you idiot, you've ruined it. You know, I just had thought that was it. You know, the lap was over. But the thing was, it was a short run. It's a very very short full throttle run between you know the dipper and then the the braking. Um, the breaking point um, as you go around the that right hand and, and drop down to Forest Elbow. So, you know, it's like I've lost time, you know, we'll just carry on with it. And I never run, you know, a plus minus on the dash because I just, you know, they, personally I just, one of those things that I can't use because mm-hmm. I just, uh, if I'm looking at it and focused on it too much, I mean, I take my head off to the people that do use them effectively, but it just wasn't something for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just assumed, you know, the lap wasn't, good so I just pushed as hard as I could because I thought oh I've buggered it so I might as well you know I'm going to put it all on the line for the finish and just see what we can do so that car recently came up for sale I think didn't it well, you went, you won, it's sold it hasn't, but, but you won Bathurst that yeah. year obviously the lap of the gods did it tempt you were you tempted to that would be a ha- hell of a car to own <laughs> what would that be worth how would you hide something <laughs> like that from your wife and how would you somehow launder enough money with 750,000 Australian dollars launder or find and hide seven hundred fifty thousand dollars from my missus, but um, no, oh, listen, I, you know, it's something I'd love to have. Mm. And that we actually, you know, I'm not a, I'm not um, 
sort of overly um, sentimental or yeah, sentimental, I suppose, in many respects. Um, but that's something that um, I just personally think because it's tough, it's mean, it's a cool car, mm. it's got it's got a meaning, and that would be that would be pretty neat to have. But uh, um, yeah, Lotto Lotto needs to be one to to do that. It'd be one of the first things I did going I'd go and get though if I won Lotto. Back to back, you went 03, you went 04, and you were the king of Pukekohe. I mean, even winning races there in in 05 and things like that. When you ultimately decided to give it away, you still had a very successful stint as a co-driver with the, the Holden Racing Team doing doing that in the, the well, latter. That was overly successful, but but you still did it, which was which was a good thing. But was it a hard drug to, to give up to stop? I mean, it had been such a significant part of your life. They're unbelievable cars. What, what to stop? How hard was that? Yeah, really hard. Uh, very difficult. Um, and I wanted to be making a decision. Mm-hmm. Effectively, I ended up not making a decision. The last year, the Kelly Racing was tough because I totally understand, you know, the, the reasoning behind it all. But but 2012, once the announcement was made that, um, you know, th- th- that it was going to be Nissan Motorsport in 2013, um, the inevitable happened, and that was that um, all... Uh, any kind of spending and, and um, development of any kind of, you know, for the rest of 2012 was done and dusted with um, because, you know, what was the point in wasting any money on on, on um, out-of-date Commodores when you were going to be having to build and spend a fortune on um, brand-new Nissan Altimus for 2013. So it got really hard and there was... And then on top of that, just to add to it all, um, first race of the year... Or first event of the year, you know, qualifying for Sunday at, at the Clipsal 500, and you know, um, I end up bursting my disc in my back after contact with John O'Webb, uh, you know, into the last corner on a qualifying lap, which was something I knew was going to happen to someone at some stage because no one would do anything about the whole qualifying scenario where everyone would just slow right down and try and get a gap and people were getting caught up all the time you know on laps and it was going to happen it was a discussion point that was happening all the time at the driver's briefings but nothing was happening anyway I come around the corner and on a flying lap just after a red flag for someone else for some other issue I was the first out the gate I think and I was the first to start a lap and um come around a complete one through the, the back section there through that second to last corner which the, where the car gets you know is really teetering on maximum grip and mm-hmm. I didn't see Jono until it was too late and tried to avoid should have gone to the outside and gone on the grass but um, tried to stay on the track he sort of tried to get out of the way a little bit but it was too late and you know we collided or I collided with him very very fast and unbeknowing at the time even though you know we didn't race that day because the car was so badly damaged I burst my d- disc in my back um, after I had had back surgery, um, you know, two years prior, and um, and at the Grand Prix that year, um, we actually had a reasonable weekend at the Grand Prix. Um, I uh, felt something in my back, and um, long story short, you know, it ended up being that I had to have um, a fusion done and missed five races of the year as well, on top of um, um, you know a tough season as it was, and and um, yeah, so it was it was pretty miserable. And you know, did, I did the doctor tell you to stop? Or? No, no, stop. Just you know, there was a. He said it would it would be absolutely fine. He never had a a, a, a patient that was um, a racing car driver, but he mm-hmm. said you know, the healing is is this period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was back, uh, you know, in a car just after six weeks, and felt good, felt fine. Um, but he said if you have a, an impact of some descriptor, I, I can't tell you. I'm not going to say don't do it, but, but I can't tell you what will happen if you have another impact. But it felt great, and, you know, it was like, well, how much bad luck can you have, I suppose, kind of thing. So we went back at it, but as I say, the rest of the year was pretty tough and, and uncompetitive and, and pretty miserable. And, and I'd never really contemplated, even though it had sort of been mentioned about maybe staying on to race with the team but I just didn't have this desire to go and change manufacturers that late in my, my career and, mm. and maybe maybe destroy um, you know the many 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 years that I had put together being a Holden driver mm. and my relationships with, with Holden and with with HSV and, and everybody else and, and so I never, was never really on the radar and and to be honest, you know, the discussions never really came to any kind of fruition, and that was probably partly due to the fact that, you know, I showed my my unhappiness with with how, you know, that year and that car was being run um, towards the end of the year, well, for a large part of the year. 
that loyalty is still um, something to this day, you know, your relationship with HSV and, and Holden, you, you came back here and had success in, in super touring in New Zealand, and these days you do a bit of rallying, don't you? Tell us a bit about, about that project, and uh, do you enjoy doing that, and how did that all come about? Uh, you just got to have something, you know, as you said, it was very hard to get a, to leave supercars, but other things have, you know, came along that made sense, um, but you still need that fix, you still need that rush, something to do, and I always was a fan, a lot Love rallying, love WRC. Used to love going out and watching WRC when it was in New Zealand. Um, it's just something that I've a huge amount of appreciation and respect for those that do it very well. And um, so it was something I always wanted to do. A lot of people I know uh, uh, were involved in it. And when I moved back home, it wasn't too long before uh, you know the a seat was offered and and the first um, event happened. And um, so we've con- continued down that path and you know got a uh, an AP4. Um, Holden Barina that's, you know, been professionally built. and Four-wheel drive? Four-wheel drive, turned into a race car. So four-wheel drive, safety of six-speed sequential box. Um, we run the two-litre uh, 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 Chevrolet engine in the car. It's modified to 1800 or um, um, brought down to 1800ccs and turbocharged. And it's about 350 horsepower and, and about uh, 600 newton metres of torque or something, I think. Something like that. It's crazy numbers. And it's just a... a just yeah, completely different. All new. You focus on what you're doing, not what no one else is doing, um, and you go sideways. I've spent my whole career trying to go drive straight and being told to drive straight and look after the tyres, and now I can throw it into a corner, you know, throw it in backwards and, and um, hit the gas and, and get out of a corner, and, and that's the fast way around. So He says with a bright smile, but I, but I would imagine that's had a bit of reprogramming in the way you drive oh. and what you do. It's it's the antithesis, isn't it? It's Endless it. amounts of reprogramming. And, and to be honest, it'll, you know, I'll, I'll still be um, changing the program um, up to the day that I say, okay, that's enough, mm-hmm. and, and move on. All right. What about... We talked about the Datsun at the beginning of the of the chat here. Best race car of all time that you've driven. You mightn't have done long, you know, a long period of time. It doesn't have to be a supercar. It can be anything. But the car that you walked away from going, that was cool. Um, the car that I suppose just um, blew me away more than anything else and, and um, was one of the most outrageous machines I think ever designed and built and put on a racetrack uh, was the Panos wow. uh, LMP1 car and uh, myself, Jason Bright and, um, were invited um, thanks to the race of a thousand years in Adelaide in Adelaide um, to um, to drive uh, a Panos with David Brabham and um, we went to Sebring and tested that car and uh, I mean it's hard to try and even comprehend what the thing was all about. I mean, it was a roadster. Yeah. You sat right back near the back wheels. You had this, this. it seemed like seven metre long you know, front. It was like a Batmobile. It was yeah. just crazy. The most outrageous car with a seven litre Ford engine in it, you know, sequential gearbox. It, it, it was wild. Your head sat out the top and it was wild. And I never got, you know, I don't think Jason or I ever got on top of that car. We ended up um, having dramas and I... Um, had uh, a moment in that car during that race had a brake issue that um, put it in in the runoff and into the fence at um, what are we turn eleven a tricky tricky turn eleven at Adelaide got the car back eventually back to the pits they fixed it we finished the race but um, it was a, a tricky car something that David Brabham drove so so incredibly well Jan Magnussen was also one of the drivers back then do, doing amazing things in that car but uh, they were that was something else that was a beast, an absolute beast, very very fast aerodynamically it was very fast too and that was something that did struggle to get your head around. If hypothetically your wife Monique was okay with it, if hypothetically you'd won Lotto, what's the car in Greg Murphy's dream garage that may not be there now, what would you have to have? Oh my god that is so tricky. Probably hard to nail down to one. Is that it? is so 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 tricky because I have a a, um, a very wide ranging appeal or uh, well, love affair with so many vehicles. You know, I love my American muscle cars, as you know, and um, I've got a uh, a '69 Dodge Charger that is um, going through. I think it's tenth year of of uh, some form of um, <laughs> customization. Um, so I love all that stuff, but yeah, that's a that's a real hard one. Uh, if it was going to be a road car. Cool, what would it be? Um, don't know. I love an I love an F40. Love an F40. Saying that, um, I think if uh, 
albeit it'd have to be a big lotto win now, um, an F1, McLaren F1, three-seater McLaren F1, you know. Um, once upon a time, you could buy them for not a lot of money, and now you can't. And uh, that, I think, is probably it was ahead of its time, that car, and I don't know if there's more ultimate um, road car than maybe maybe that one. Where will the 69 Charger end up in terms of its restoration? What are you doing to it? How far away before it'll be completed? That is a, um, an open-ended... Um, I'm going to open-ended answer that one. I have no idea. Ten years in, and it's um, probably still ten years away by the way it's going at the moment, but I, I do need to get it done because it is, it is uh, again, uh, I think it's my Dukes of Hazzard fetish back in the, <laughs> the 80s that have, has got me locked into that one. And uh, it needs to be done. It will be done. Um, because it is a, it will be a special car. But um, after seeing some of the stuff that's as uh, comes off um, uh, some of the shop floors in, in in America, I think maybe it's going to have to go to America to get it wow. uh, to get finished because. Uh, uh, otherwise, I'll never be happy with it. So it will be not in orange colours. Clearly, what are you going to? You're not going to make it a Bowen Luke Duke special. It, no, no, it won't be. It, it may be an orange, orange and black of some descript, because that seems to be something that I sort of uh, stuck with a long time ago, and and um, maybe down the, the path of uh, um, uh, the original. You know, papaya, orange, McLaren, potentially something like that. I don't know. Uh, the colour is a long way away, probably from needing to be decided, uh, considering the amount of work that needs to be done. But it's uh, it's it's definitely the the muscle car that I want to to have. On the next episode of Rusty's Garage, I speak with Matt Hall, who's a top bloke, a top pilot. Actually, he's a top gun. There was one time I was uh, I was running on the deck in an exercise in an F15. And I was doing about 750 knots at uh, 100 foot off the ground. So we're looking at around about you know 1300 kilometres an hour, about 100 feet, um, in the middle of the desert, like near Area 51. And um, my fuel flow at the time was 110,000 pounds of fuel per engine. So 220,000 pounds of fuel an hour going out the back end. So yeah, yeah, do the maths on that. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastone.com.au. Listen to all the episodes of Rusty's Garage at podcastone.com.au via the Podcast One app or find us on iTunes. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely.